0: Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Deborah Madison. She is a chef, a cooking instructor, the author of 14 cookbooks, James Beard Award winner. She has worked with Alice Waters at Chez Panisse, She was the founding chef at Green's Restaurant in San Francisco. I am sitting here with two of Deborah Madison's books, Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, which is probably the one that has made her most famous. It was originally published in 1997. It has been republished now as the new Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, and her latest glorious book called Vegetable Literacy. So, Deborah, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, I was explaining before we started the interview, I had a little confession, and that is that I picked up vegetarian cooking for everyone at a library sale. And little did I know what a treasure I was going to find there. Every single recipe that I've made out of that cookbook has been simple, elegant, easy, and delicious. And I have to say I really do believe that this is the cookbook for anyone who is really based in plant-based diets. And as a dietitian, of course, that's what we recommend for good health. And as you describe in this book, you don't have to be a vegetarian to really enjoy and appreciate this book. You can serve meat with any of these dishes. But I would liken it to the joy of cooking, only vegetarian style. So let's just step back a moment and ask a little bit about how you found cooking. And so where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Davis, California, which is a university town in the Central Valley of California.
0: And did you have a garden? Did you cook as a child?
1: Well, a little bit. We did have a garden. My father was a botanist and formerly a farmer and... It was so amazing, I think, to him to be moving from upstate New York to California where you can grow just about anything. We always had a wonderful garden, which was a good thing, too, because there wasn't very much in terms of variety, especially in produce and in the supermarkets, and it was before farmer's markets, so having that really helped a lot. Um, what was your other question? (laughs) I'm sorry.
0: Well, I wanted to know a little bit about your history as a child, you know, where you grew up and how you got introduced to cooking. Did you cook a child? Well
1: my mother was actually a pretty indifferent cook and she just had other things on her mind, let's put it that way. But she and my father took a sabbatical and when they went to Europe they farmed all us kids out with different people and I went to live with a botanist and his wife who had no children, who had discretionary income, who had lived at lot in France, and who really enjoyed good food and wine. And I was 16, and that was really my introduction to good food and the idea that food was supposed to taste good, which was kind of a surprise to me, actually. Yeah. What
0: a serendipitous opportunity.
1: Yeah. But I have to say, even though I got very interested and I liked to cook and did it a little bit out of self-defense, my interest in cooking kind of would rise and go underground, rise and go underground for a long, long time. I mean, for 20 years or so before I really got engaged.
0: So I'm assuming that as a child eating at the family table was not the same as when you went to live with this other family.
1: Yeah, it was nothing like it.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because in your book, in Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, which I really cannot recommend enough, You talk about the importance of the table and sitting together, and again, this book was first published in 1997. That's the version that I have, and you make the recommendation to turn off the TV, and now, of course, people are bringing all kinds of electrical devices to the table, which I'm sure irks you as much as me.
1: Oh, I mean, it doesn't happen in our house, fortunately, but I suppose that does happen. It's it's bad enough to see people walking around in streets and, and looking into their phones in restaurants instead of having a conversation, but oh my gosh, I hadn't thought of that. That new horror. <laughs>
0: That's right. It really removed us from just the simple pleasures that you describe in this book. Okay, so what was your first cooking job? And I know you went to school at the University of California in Santa Cruz. What did you major in and how did that progress to cooking work?
1: Well, I majored in sociology, actually, and I didn't even know what my major was because I was there at the very beginning of UC Santa Cruz, and we didn't really have majors that you chose from. I mean, you know, there were a 100 people in my graduating class. We didn't have grades. We wrote a thesis. But it turns out it was sociology and had very little to do with cooking at all. I wasn't thinking about food. I was really thinking about studying A lot. So I didn't actually start to cook until years later I was living at the San Francisco Zen Center and we needed a cook for our community and I don't know, my hand just shot up. I guess I thought it was maybe the most interesting thing to do and that I would like to do it, but I didn't really have much experience at that time. So it was hit the ground running and learn as you go. And it was a very intense period.
0: Well, I think that what I gleaned from reading the introduction of your first book was that you really understand the intuitive process of cooking and the intimate nature of food and your appreciation for having beautiful plates. They don't have to be expensive, but at least not eating off of Styrofoam, for goodness sake. Right.
1: Yeah, I know. I did a photo shoot with a wonderful woman from Norway, and she had just come from having Thanksgiving with her family, and she showed me the pictures of it, and they were all eating on paper plates. And they had prepared this huge feast, which you know took a lot of time and work and money, and then they put it on paper plates so no one would have to wash the dishes, I guess. And it was just so heartbreaking to me. I mean, I'm a dish person anyway, but there's something about a paper plate that that's fine on a picnic, but (laughs) but if you're going to all this trouble, let's just carry it through and set a beautiful table. Your dishes can do so much to frame your food or to set it off, and particularly people who are looking for a vegetarian main course, say, but... They don't want to go to a whole lot of trouble. Maybe they're going to make a stir-fry or a pasta dish or have a good soup or something. If you use the right bowl, if you use a bowl with a rim, it kind of frames the whole thing and it brings your attention to it and it makes it strong. If you just throw it in a takeout thing, it's takeout. I mean, it kind of disappears.
0: I agree. And, you know, I'll bet if we were to do a tasting survey The person who ate off a beautiful plate, or at least a complimentary colored plate, would say that that food tasted better. I haven't done the research, but I'm sure, I'm
1: sure that's true. And, and in almost all my books, I think all my books that have photographs, I've always worked with potters. I've been a collection of folk art, you know, folk art pottery. I mean, I just use my everyday dishes. And sometimes they're from just Pure 1 or Cost Plus or something, and other times they're by a beautiful Italian potter. I believe in mixing and, you know, drawing from everywhere. It's not about the money, you know, but sometimes it's just shape. It's, like you say, the color, the feeling that it imbues a dish with that's so important because we eat with our eyes as much as with our other senses.
0: Exactly, and you use the term conscious presentation, which I love, to accentuate Taste and visual beauty. So I just want to thank you for recognizing that and hopefully maybe moving people back towards recognizing the importance of slowing down and making meals a celebration. Now, I want to also stay on this one book for a moment, if I may, The Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. If I
1: can interrupt, it's now The New Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. It's the same book, but it has an extra, it has additional recipes. It, it moves more with the times as they've changed in terms of ingredients and tastes and, and so forth. So um, although you can still get Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone very easily, it's the new Vegetarian Cooking for, for Everyone that's just come out recently that's a little more updated.
0: And we want to make sure that we recommend that one because in addition to those 1,400 recipes, which originally blew my mind because I couldn't believe there could be that many vegetarian dishes, we now have 150 new dishes in the new book. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Actually, I just printed out the list, and I noticed it's 211. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes, I mean, a dish can be something that's very simple. I mean, you can have a slice avocado and put some togarashi sashimi on it which is a really wonderful lively japanese mixture of spices and citrus and and maybe a, just a little t- few drops of sesame oil and it becomes it's not guacamole anymore you know it's something else altogether so many of these recipes are Very simple little things you can do, and others are are more evolved and elaborate. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, I like that you talk about tools in the cookbook, and really it doesn't matter whether you're cooking meat or whether you're cooking vegetarian dishes. Tools in the kitchen are really important, and your favorite is? My favorite? (laughs) Or your most important A good knife. (laughs) I I always tell people, I think it's very important,
1: no matter what you're cooking, that you have a large cutting board and you have sharp knives. You don't need a lot of them, but you need a way to keep them sharp. And you need to give yourself plenty of room to work, particularly if you're centering on, you know, plant-based foods because they're big. They have leafy matters. They have stems. They have peels. They just take room. It's different than seasoning a a piece of meat and and putting it in a pan. So I always recommend, particularly when I see people struggling on a little tiny board that was probably a wedding present cheese board, you know, with a dull knife. That's misery. You know, it's total misery. From there on out, well, it depends partly on the kinds of foods you like to cook. But, you know, I'm not a big equipment person in terms of owning a lot my kitchen's tiny but I think it's important to have your few pots and pans and mortar and pestle your knives your cutting board a few things like that be really good quality because you're using them every day Mm -hmm. hopefully
0: now you've been identified as America's leading authority on vegetarian cooking how did you find that path
1: when I was at the Zen Center, we as a group decided to be vegetarian. I grew up not eating a lot of meat, so that wasn't particularly problematic for me. I just wanted to cook. I was the head cook. And this was during the very early 70s, even the late 60s, when vegetarian food was a pretty dreary business. So I decided my mandate, my job was to make Food without meat that was attractive, that was familiar, that, you know, that people wanted to eat and that made them feel good. So I really started kind of from the ground up. I mean, we didn't know anything. And the youth culture at that time generally didn't. It knew it wanted to change. And it bought lots of grains and groats and grits and stuff. I had no idea how to cook them. And so that was my job, and I did it for a long time and and ultimately opened Green's Restaurant. So that was really introducing vegetarian food to
0: a non-vegetarian public. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that as we face conditions of the day, such as climate change, and I think as we become more enlightened about our food system, I can see us moving towards a plant-based diet in a much bigger way. So I think that this is a perfect time for you to have come out with the new vegetarian cooking for everyone. Yeah, I
1: I hope it is, and and I hope it, it appeals to, there's a whole new generation of younger people now who are growing up and thinking about these issues, which have changed somewhat since I wrote it the first time. And hopefully it will serve to give them a sense of possibility in a world that's, just changing very radically, mm-hmm. and it's actually more open to plant foods than it was when I first wrote the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Deborah Madison. She is the author, most recently, of The New Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone and Vegetable Literacy. Deborah, I want to ask you a little bit about the way you organize your cookbooks especially with regard to vegetable literacy. I mean, I've never in my life seen a cookbook that is organized by families of plants, and I think that's what makes this book so unique, right? So there's a little subtitle under Vegetable Literacy that says Cooking and Gardening with 12 Families from the Edible Plant Kingdom with over 300 deliciously simple recipes. Yet again, an emphasis on simple and delicious. What made you... Think in terms of plant families for this book.
1: Well, I've gardened for a while. I'm not a great gardener, I will hasten to say, but I have grown some food and been involved with the garden. And I just started noticing similarities at a certain point and relationships. And I just thought, I think if we as a people began to look at plants that were related to each other. We might find that they have characteristics that are related to each other and they might work similarly in the kitchen and we might become a little less tied to a recipe. So, for example, if you know that chard and beets and spinach and amaranth and quinoa um, and a whole bunch of other plants that are, are more wild are, are related to each other and you might feel like, gee, I don't have any chard for this recipe, but I think I'll use beet greens because I happen to have a lot of those, and I know they're related. And guess what? They taste and behave pretty similarly to one another. So my hope was it would free people to be, you know, more comfortable being creative than in the kitchen because they would have this basic knowledge. But also I just think it's really fun to know more about the world we live in. I get a little irritated sometimes with, oh, it's so beautiful, or you go to the store and there's wonderful display of vegetables, but you have no sense of what's related to what. I mean, it's all over the map. It's, oh, this fits here, that fits there. If we knew the brassicas, if we knew members of the aster family or the sunflower family and we saw them all together, we might just find we could think a little bit more creatively.
0: Mm -hmm. And I should also mention that you have been involved on the slow food committees for biodiversity, as well as you've been on the board for Seed Savers. So I think that you, I'm just going to guess here that it's because of your botanist father, you also have a botanist brother, but because of your experience and maybe understanding a little bit more about the importance of biodiversity, that you've brought that to the pages of this book. Well, I hope so. I mean,
1: it's certainly an overriding interest of mine. So much so, I forgot to mention it. But yes, it is. And in the garden, especially, it's so exciting to to come across. And you come across it in animals too. You know, um, right. not to leave them out. But but I'm I'm not raising animals. I'm I'm raising vegetables mainly and herbs and so forth. And so, seeing the subtleties that exist among related plants among the genuses not even just the families is to me very exciting and Mm -hmm. usually people kind of get excited too when when we start to talk about it or you know you start to look at carrots that are ivory colored or purple instead of orange they're all carrots they taste pretty similar but they might get you to think about oh i've got these white carrots what if i use those in a carrot cake And I do have an Italian carrot cake. It's very light. It's not like our usual carrot cake made with white or with pale yellow carrots, and it's lovely. It's not that you can't use the orange. It's just different. It's let's use what we have and see where we can take things, and often we can take them into realms we, we haven't visited before.
0: Well, and I think that the real tragedy of so many of our supermarkets, especially in areas that are not... Maybe more urban markets or in communities where people have a higher level of education and income, you see more diversity in a supermarket. But there are so many communities in our country that really are desert-like in terms of not having a lot of diversity. Maybe there's two varieties of apples, for example, or Mm -hmm. you only have access to the orange carrot so that when you have the opportunity to go to a farmer's market and see a little bit more diversity, it's so refreshing, and helping people not to be afraid of that diversity. Yeah, and giving them ideas about
1: how to, how to have a good time with it. For example, I was just in California, and I was cooking at a spa doing a little demo, and they had... So many colored beets. They had every colored beet you can imagine. And and I decided I would use them. So I used the pink and the yellow and the white ones, the delicate colors, the the kiyogia, the stripes, to make a very spring-like looking salad that just, it's just all pinks and yellows and golds. And then I took the purple ones and I made a salad with them and I used the dark leafy greens as part of it. Okay, it's all beets, you Mm. know, but... They gave you such a different feeling and such a different mood that, and it's the same day. You know, it's not like I had to come back and do the dark ones later. It's just like if you use your eyes and you think about, oh, this is dark, dark red. These leaves are dark, dark green. I mean, this is a a, a wintry kind of thing. It's not about spring and. You know, so we can begin to to just think about things a little bit differently.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things you bring up in the vegetable literacy book is you talk about kale and you say where was it when we were growing up? So <laughs> right, like all of a sudden, yeah, kale... that's true. I've all, I've often wondered about that. Yeah, yeah. How we did, did that have kale?
1: To... I mean, I I do think it's because it's not such a hard plant to grow, and when farmers were just getting started, and they didn't have agroecology degrees, and they're just saying, gee, I think I want to grow stuff. Hey, kale was reliable, so it always showed up at the farmer's market, and then it was always in CSA boxes, and I know this because I can't tell you how many farmers have called and said, can we use your kale recipe in our CSA box, and I say, sure, go ahead, for sure, you know, but it's a good, reliable, and, and now it's interesting. We've taken it so much further than we might have if it hadn't made its presence so, you know, yeah. so well known and, and even tire, you know, in a t- slightly
0: tiresome way. Well, and it's so nutritious. You know, what I love about bringing these different plants back into fashion is the fact that they have nutrients that maybe we hadn't been exposed to before. And so from a dietitian's perspective, it's exciting to think that those different crops are bringing preventive medicine to our plates.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And some of them might even be wild plants. Yes. You know, in New Mexico, we eat a lot of what's called candites, which just means greens, but it's a very specific green here. It's, it's a quinoa podium and a goosefoot, and and the cultivar is called Good King Henry. We call it wild spinach, and it tastes quite a bit like spinach and chard and quinoa greens and all the other members of that family, and they're really tender and they're really delicious, but they do have this quality um, that comes from being wild that you just feel it when you eat them. Mm -hmm. I don't know it's hard maybe you as a nutritionist can describe what it is exactly but it's something strong you know you feel it it's just really alive it's really there and it's quite exciting so I have to say this doing the research on this and having my own experience has made me want to look further into plant families and see what else might be offered.
0: Mm -hmm. And instead of killing what we call weeds, maybe we could become more familiar with some of these wild plants are and see that, you know, we've got food growing all around us. Mm Mm-hmm. That's true. I have to ask you why this title? And I should let our listeners know that I don't really know where to put vegetable literacy. I don't know whether it should be on a coffee table or in my kitchen because the photographs are stunning. Oh, aren't they beautiful? Yes, they are. (laughs) And
1: I especially love the cover with the crazy walking onions on it. You know, the minute I saw that picture, I said, that's it.
0: (laughs) The risk is that you may have just eaten, and if you pick this book up, you're going to be hungry again because it's just (laughs) so visually beautiful. But why did you decide on the title, Vegetable Literacy? Well,
1: you know, I don't know. It, It was something that had been on my desktop as an idea, For many, many years, it just said vegetable literacy. So I think it was really about, to me, it was the literate part is about becoming familiar with um, vegetables beyond the pretty face. Mm -hmm. You know, um, becoming familiar with their relationships, with their behaviors. For example, like almost all the vegetables we commonly eat from the Astor family have bitterness in them. And they have this latex, and when you break a lettuce root or radicchio or dandelion or, you know, almost any of these, this white sap comes out that if you taste it, it's really, really bitter. And it's a very funny, odd, somewhat tricky family. And I thought, wow, who knows about this? Well, you get to know about it if you read, if you taste, if you grow, if you're involved with it. So I guess... That's why I chose that title, because it was really becoming more acquainted, more literate about
0: vegetables. Well, I think it's a brilliant title, and I love the divisions, and it sparks curiosity in the reader as they're looking at it. And I just want to thank you for presenting this kind of information to Cooks. I think it's where we need to go next to better understand and preserve these beautiful foods and crops and plants.
1: Well, thank you. I I appreciate that. And I have to say it was so much fun to write this book, to grow the gardens, to grow everything that's in the book, and really become familiar with it. It was so much
0: fun. We just have a couple of minutes. Do you want to pull something out of either of these two books or any of the work that you've done to leave our listeners with?
1: Well, let's see. I just have vegetable literacy in front of me. You mean
0: like a recipe? Well, just anything you want to leave our listeners with. It could be a recipe that jumps out at you or it could be a I want way to talk about herbs. Yeah. Herbs
1: for a minute because Good. so many people have said, "Oh, I'm just tired of having this the same old way." And yet, they're too busy. They're pressed for time. And I think of herbs as adjectives. You know, they kind of modify a vegetable, and there's so much you can do with them. Corn is different, whether it's with basil or with tarragon or cumin or cilantro or, you know, depending on what herb you put with it. And the same is true, of course, with beets and carrots and all of our common vegetables. So... One of the things I found really interesting is that there are a whole lot of herbs in the the anvilifer family. There there are all these beautiful lacy things. A lot of them begin with sea, like caraway and cumin and chervil, cilantro, but also parsley and dill. And they make these beautiful little crowns of flowers and seeds, just as the vegetables do. But the rest of them, the herbs that we commonly use, most of them, not all, but most of them are in the mint family. Hmm. Very. That includes, you know, some things that might surprise us, like rosemary and basil and sage. (laughs) There's just an awful lot of uh, of herbs, and and, and of course the mints themselves, thyme, in in that family. And it may be surprising, but if you have a chance to grow them or to encounter them and just put your hands through them and inhale, you begin to see that they're some shared characteristics, but they're individual characteristics that really come forward and they're the ones that do the work of complementing a vegetable. So I would encourage people to get to know herbs and whether they grow them in a little pot or they buy them at the farmer's market, there are various ways to do it, but they can do so much to To influence your flavors and your cooking.
0: Well, I want to thank you for leaving us with that tip. And I want to let our listeners know again that we have been speaking with Deborah Madison. She is America's leading authority on vegetarian cooking. And we have been speaking about two of her latest books the first, The New Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone, and Vegetable Literacy. Beautiful books to add to your kitchen. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to thank you, Deborah, so much for being my guest. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us.
1: Thank you.